0: Visit iConnections.io. So typically, I'll start these uh, On the Tape podcasts with a lyric from a song. But you know what? I had a lot of time to think. By the way, uh, this is the On the Tape podcast. I am Guy Adami, always joined by the very handsome Danny Moses and the ever-shrinking Dan Nathan. Today, we have the joy of Stuart Sop the CEO of Current. He will be joining us for the entire podcast. So we have a lot going on. And as I mentioned, a lot of time to think I was on the plane home last night from Omaha, Nebraska. And if you've flown with me, which many of you have not, you know that I basically sit in my seat and I stare forward. And by staring forward, I think about a lot of things. And last night I was thinking about how do we start this podcast? And we're doing it today on Friday because we had Apple earnings yesterday. We wanted to get on the backside of that. And we obviously had a jobs number this morning that we will discuss. But it came to me knowing that Stuart was going to join us. He reminds me of one of these 16th century English poets. He's got the, you know, he's got, what do they call those things when you put it on the your head? With the look. Little- Bun, right? The man, Bun. He's very handsome. He's got the beard. He's got the accent. He's bright as shit. Like, he's a poet. Like, he's a throwback from other times. So I said to myself, All right, what poet does he sort of look like? And it dawned on me because I took poetry drama in college that he looks remarkably like Sir Thomas Wyatt. And then I said to myself, Well, Sir Thomas Wyatt has a very famous poem. And that's exactly the poem that lends itself to this episode. And just indulge me yet again for just a minute. Uh, the name of the poem is They Flee From Me. They flee from me that sometime did me seek. With naked foot stalking in my chamber, I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek that now are wild and do not remember. And Danny Moses, think about this for a second. What has been fleeing? Deposits have been fleeing from different regional and smaller banks in record amounts. They are fleeing from the people they sometime did seek. And as we sit here today, more and more banks are seemingly going by the wayside. The bigger banks are getting bigger. The whole too big to fail stuff that we were sort of railing against for years is alive and well. Market's a bit on its horse here today as we speak, but there's so many things to talk about. By the way, Stuart, welcome. And what are your thoughts about
1: me comparing you to Sir Thomas Wyatt? That was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, it's always great to be here. I have never been compared to a poet before, so I appreciate that. That was that was a new one for me. Um, but but uh, obviously very flattered. So, guy, a little housekeeping. So you were in
2: Omaha. It must have been what it was your um, high school reunion. You, Charlie yes. Munger, and, yes. and Warren. Um, and what you were a year behind them. Um, so they just kind of put a bunch of the years together for
0: Omaha High. Is that what they did? I think when you get to a certain age, they try not to do it by year. They try to do it by those of us that are still alive. So by the way, Charlie was four years ahead of me. I think he was a senior my freshman year. And I think Warren was somewhere in between, but we had a rate, we had a great time in Omaha. I got to see Creighton university for the first time in a while. It was a great trip, but I did a lot of introspection and there's no doubt that we can't bury the lead here, Danny. I mean, banks are front and center. Uh, We're seeing it each and every day, seemingly, at least the equity of these banks are getting lambasted, justifiably so, not justifiably so, it doesn't matter. People say there's not a banking crisis, maybe not a systemic risk, but there's clearly a problem in terms of the equity. And, you know, we'll have a conversation with Stuart about
3: how this manifests itself into the economy. You don't think that Jerome Powell's a poet when he says that the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient? I've, um, that was pretty amazing. poetic as far as I'm – but, Guy, you know, we come on the show. I say this all the time. We don't know what you're going to come out with. I thought you were going Gordon Lightfoot today. Uh. For sure. Because you had to be a fan of Gordon Lightfoot. So I had a lyric to sing that is about Jerome Powell. Ready? Go if you could read my mind love what a tale my thoughts could tell that's jerome powell right he just read this guy's mind right so let me talk about the banks for a second i think that the, i think that the deposit outflow story is over i think the deposit changing within the bank and the interest bearing for non-interest bearing is not i think the fed has basically implied and the treasury have implied that they're not going to let people lose money as depositors even if you're over 250. i think that's pretty clear so that part I think of the quote, crisis is over. Now we're on to bring back 2008, blaming short sellers. Let's do a, you know, short ban could be coming. That type shit's flying out there right now, right? All short sellers did was identify the problem six months ago to tell people what was going to happen. But did the regulators did the San Francisco Fed do anything? Did the Fed do anything? And one of the most telling things was when Powell was pressed from Leisman, I believe, about what happened in February meeting when you were alerted basically, that Silicon Valley may be, quote, in trouble. And he didn't answer. And then Leisman pressed him again. That was a very embarrassing moment, I think, for the Fed in general. But here's the thing. When these banks go up for, quote, sale, the beauty pageant or the non-beauty pageant, if you want to call it in this regard, it's not just about the securities anymore. Banks are getting a holistic look at the other little banks, what they're looking at. They're looking at commercial real estate. They're looking at loan loss provisions, looking at credit. So it's not just about the transfer of these securities onto a bigger balance sheet. And that's actually What's happening right now, in my opinion. So when JP Morgan had to look at First Republic or these other banks, we're going to see more and more of this potentially happening. It's not just about the securities anymore. It's buying this franchise. And I think that's more telling. And again, we know there's bigger issues at the bank, which are slower moving. They're elephants, so to speak, in commercial real estate. So I think we're in the early innings, but I do feel like the crisis of depositors being at risk it's kind of past us at this point.
2: Yeah, so interesting. You know, Stewart was on CNBC's Fast Money last night. That was Thursday. And one of the first questions he got from Melissa was about PacWest and, and really uh, about some of the things that you guys both just discussed here. And it's interesting, Guy, you know, you mentioned that the too big to fail, that, you know, all of this regulation since the financial crisis, right, in the years after was really meant to kind of diversify risk across the banking system. And now it's coming back up into it, right? And it's coming with um, the, a bit of moral hazard Stuart, that was a term that you used last night. When you think about the company that you and Trevor built in the wake of the financial crisis, you were squarely looking at some of these large institutions. Help us think about this through your lens, right? Because to Danny's point, the regional banking equity is literally, I mean, it's like a rounding error right now, right? They took out the biggest ones for all intents and purposes over the last month and a half. Now we're looking at ones that have sub-billion dollars in equities. They still have, obviously, huge assets um, Assets and and, and liabilities on on their balance sheets, right? And those are the things that are being backstopped. Consumers' um, money deposits at those institutions are being backstopped. What does it mean, like, to you and to fintech? I mean, fintech has been this massive theme trying to disintermediate, trying to actually serve customers that were not well served, whether maybe it was by a really small bank or a really large bank. What does it mean now that all of these major money centers are just getting, you know, way big here and they're really gobbling up, um, you know, everything below it?
1: Yeah, I think um, with fintech specifically compared to like regionals, right, if you can make that comparison, it's a business model uh, differentiation, which is what I was kind of bringing up yesterday. So banks, obviously, long duration, there's a duration mismatch. It's kind of surprising that the market it broadly is surprised by this. Uh, maybe they're surprised by their risk management. I think that's probably where we're all surprised. And also the lack of regulation or regulatory Oversight from this you know, massively uh, accelerated uh, rate hikes it's obviously uh, signified that maybe their treasury departments or whatever it is, their risk management is not as good as it should have been. Um, and then for, for fintechs like us, we conflate banking uh, in the sense of providing banking services, but we don't really have this duration problem. We have a payment solution, right? And so you're really seeing the highlight um, of, of those two business models and the fact that um, we're probably a lot safer. When it comes to, like, when I back things up a bit, I think you know, really high level, uh, uh, FRC that has now gone under, that was identified back in March, right? So when SVB went under, everyone was like, okay, FRC is in trouble. The regulators knew it. The banking fraternity knew it. And I think that that was basically a tale. But what we're seeing right now, this, this sort of smaller, low low market cap, low float regional banks they're being attacked from the equity side first and then the deposits are fleeing and that's a new phenomenon that we're seeing right now and i think it's like slightly unhealthy right because these these other banks like uh, signature uh, svb um, Silvergate—they—they they were basically serving a, a, a more affluent, more more wealthy uh, community, right? That that was way over the 250k FDIC, more digitally savvy. These regionals are very local. They—they're basically part of the GDP of the mom and pop shops, the the franchisees, your dental uh, or your vet, your or your vet. You know, that's how they get their credit, and that's where credit creation and growth is really coming from. And so, attacking these banks to make a quick buck. I think is, is ov- obviously not great, but um, <laughs> in, in terms of like you know the, the concept of that, but it's actually going to affect the, the way that uh, this, this country is going to grow going forward.
3: This is really about quantitative easing becoming quantitative tightening. And in late 2021, Powell told the market that QE was over and QT was going to begin. These banks decided at that point to plow in to these securities ahead of a Nine trillion dollar potential unwind, or at that point, eight trillion dollar potential unwind in the in the marketplace. And so we knew, right, that if you front run that legally, if you're these huge funds that buy these securities, why would you step in and buy these banks decided to do that? Right. So I'm not, you know, this whole thing about short sellers causing anything to me is nonsense because if the banks don't need to raise equity, then the stock price should matter over time and it should recover. But they missed their window potentially to raise the equity. And yes, I agree, it's self-fulfilling. And let's think back to the global financial crisis. Yes, did hedge funds, were there hedge funds out there that may have shorted Bear Stearns and subsequently pulled their assets from the bank potentially? There was certainly some of that going on. This is very different in my opinion. Stuart, you just said this was known for months. This was known for two or three quarters that this was going to happen. So I I mean, I have a real problem with people out there, quote, blaming short sellers. Of course, there's going to be people that manipulate over time, but- That's, you know, I think that's a one off here. So, again, this is forewarning. And let me just say that QT, they can pretend, yeah, they got the balance sheet down another $60 billion last night or whatever when I saw the report. That thing is done because that will be the most disruptive factor going forward because that makes the situation even worse for these banks, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I I don't disagree with you, Danny. And I think. When you look at where we are with these uh, smaller regional banks, there's what 550, 600 of them that are publicly listed in, in the country. We're slowly um, starting to see the tail end of this. I think we'll have a few more, um, but you know, I think uh, as Guy already said, it's not systemic, um, and 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 we'll probably see this sort of a halo of this over the next few months. Those, you know, as as these short sellers sort of do their job, um, I think higher level we're seeing a duration bubble burst. And I think that's really important. Um, in 2008, you know, we saw the banks being attacked, but it was a credit problem then. And that's a very different problem that we're seeing today.
0: I know Danny and Dan have thoughts on this too, but I'm gonna ask you, and, and they can chime in on the back end. So we talked about what does this mean longer term? And, and here are my thoughts on it, and I'm curious as to what you think. So obviously in terms of what we're seeing with these small and regional banks, The equity is getting sold off, I understand that. I think many more of these banks are gonna go by the wayside. Uh, I think what we're seeing, what we'll continue to see, Danny doesn't think we're gonna see that much more deposit moves, but the bigger banks are gonna get bigger. But here's my sort of premises to this whole thing, and this is how I wrap my head around it. If you think about the lifeblood of the United States economy, it's access to credit, and banks are obviously at the forefront of that. Regional banks, are sort of at the epicenter because small business is such a huge driver of employment in this country, and they have their finger on the pulse of local businesses. Almost by definition, they're immersed in the communities that they serve. If those banks are compromised, which I think we all agree that they probably are, almost by definition, the customers that they serve will be compromised. So those customers, their access to credit is gonna get more difficult. It would have been more difficult in the first place given all the regulation, more so now. So if their access to credit sort of uh, gets difficult or almost entirely goes away, there's gonna be a, the breaks are gonna be put on the economy in a meaningful way. Now we're not gonna feel that tomorrow, Stu. It's not gonna happen next week. But to me, that's the real danger of this entire thing. Not necessarily that some of these banks are going away, but what the knock-on effects are gonna be. Thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's really where my main worry is, that this is um, indicative of uh, credit creation slowing down in a significant way to the backbone of America, of where the real production and productivity is. Blue collar workers, people that um, current services, um, uh, you know, fr- fr- from, a, from a payments and banking point of view... Um, and, and, and that's really where my, my main worry is. I think we went from a liquidity crisis to a solvency crisis from this duration bubble bursting, I think with Powell saying – I think he did a good job, by the way, yesterday. Um, I, thought, I thought he uh, – or on Wednesday. He was pretty good, um, and, I, and, I, and I think he sort of – I know it's not popular to say that, um, but, <laughs> but he, I think he threaded the needle you know, in, in an okay way, um, but unfortunately they're going to need to see something break um, and then they're going to you know they're driving the car with the rearview mirror the whole time and i think at this point we've raced so quickly so you know so fast and when you you pop a duration bubble you don't know where things are going to break and i think when you talk about the main the, the people that you just talked about guy we're, we're, we're talking auto loans um, credit card debt with, with you know the, the the normal things that get you to work that keep your family going and all that other stuff um, I think is, you know, is harder to service. It's more expensive. And um, there's, there's, you know, when credit creation comes down and, and, and all these banks are going away and getting rolled up into JP Morgan, um, they're not going to service those clients in the same way. So we're seeing like material, I would say medium to long-term destruction here.
2: Yeah, I'll just say this. Uh, I did not think Fed Chair Powell did a good job. I thought um, he seemed very, very uncertain. And and I'm just going to give you one example of it. So there was, uh, I think it was Matt Bozler from uh, Bloomberg News um, asked him about the way you know Q1 GDP had been tracking, and he's just wondering. This is his question: If you can kind of elaborate and how and why you're optimistic that a recession can be avoided, given that the Fed's staff's forecast, possibly also the broader committee's forecast, as well as and also of course. Most private sector forecasters are for a recession, and he just kind of bobbled around a little bit. And he said, "This is the quote." Okay, he said, "It's possible that it's different this time." I mean, that was part of his answer. So, Danny, when you heard him, and 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 really, I I, I felt he had far less of a command. And guy, you mentioned this on many occasions. Okay, I mean. He's got a tough job right now. No doubt about it. We don't have to get into why the job is so tough. But, like, again, I think he mentioned it. Obviously, we know what their dual mandate is price stability um, and maximum employment. The problem is, and we can talk about the jobs report from April right now, you know, there is too much demand for jobs. That has been the stickiest part of inflation right now. The way if you were to look at commodities and you'd say to yourself, they're actually signaling, you know, a, 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 a recession, right? But on the jobs front, it's a very different story. I just, don't know how he could use those words. It's possibly different this
3: time. What are we expecting from the guy who thought inflation was transitory? I, I don't understand the expectations for people. I feel bad for him because he's in a really tough spot. But I think the Fed now is a sideshow. And people that are complaining, not necessarily you, Dan, about his performance, just accept the fact. No one wants to accept the fact we're going to a period of sustained higher rates. We're going to have a real economic cycle that we haven't had for 13 or 14 years. And I think that adjustment, people wanna make excuses and blame the Fed. People need to be prepared for this. And I've told you before that when you listen to these conference calls, be very be very attuned to the CEOs that blame the Fed or even talk about the Fed. The ones that just manage their business through it, you know, I, I think are gonna be obviously in much better shape and the CEOs that have been through this type of thing. So I do think the only Fed, I think the Fed's now a sideshow. It's a real fundamental tape from here. I do think, though, that the balance sheet issue with QE and QT will come back to the forefront. I think that's where the Fed's going to be very, very involved. And I do think that's going to reverse at some point. But I have no expectations for them, you know, at, at the Fed at this point, given everything that's happened in the banking system and then with all the misguided, um, Forecast on inflation. As we said earlier,
0: we waited till Friday morning to do this because we wanted to get through Apple earnings. And as they say on CNBC, the all important jobs number, I love, I just, I just love saying certain things like smash the like button and subscribe on your favorite podcast stores. For some reason, I just think of it and I smile. The jobs number came out. 235,000, which was better than expected. I think a lot of people had like 170,000 handle on it. Not that that matters because Danny will speak to the revisions, but the unemployment rate is still 3.4%. So I look at this and say, my God, it's good news for the economy, I think. I mean, it's great that people are employed. It's great that there's still pr- almost twice as many job openings as there are people looking for jobs, although that's coming down as well. Uh, the market, Danny, seems to be applauding this for now. Maybe it's on the back of the revisions that you're going to talk about. Uh, I'm not sure because to me, a 3.4% unemployment rate continues to make their
3: job, uh, they being the Federal Reserve, exceedingly difficult. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's backwards looking uh, to a degree that goes without saying. And you did get a revision lower, so the economy proved that. It- GDP that was revised kind of lower makes more sense now at the 1.1%, which is what jobs were actually doing. I think the Fed is done. I think this is actually, if you're a bull in the market, probably not a bad number. You know, there's was a great article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, I believe, last night about operating margins have come in a little bit better than expected in Q1, right? Which means the earnings revisions may not be as as bad as people have thought going forward into 2023. Those are Those are bright spots. But to your point, Guy, people that are waiting... Or believe the fed's going to be cutting if that gets pushed out to me that's a negative because with the s p at 18 or 19 times and apple at 26 times yes i know we can talk about it it was a quote oh, it was an okay quarter i mean down revenues you know down earning down operating income year over year whatever it might be it's still a quote safe name to own and why did people like the apple story because their quote bank is doing so well which is goldman sachs by the way how about that for irony but you know again i i think you know, we're going to plow ahead here. And I think it's going to be slow going on the economic data going forward. So I believe that that the Fed is done, but the number was fine. If you're a soft landing person, that's kind of what you wanted to see. Well,
2: let me tell you what's not plowing ahead. The S&P 500 right here. Okay. So we had that February 2nd high. It was 4,200. We're at 4,100 right now. We're we're opening up a little bit as we record this. Um, I think we're up, you know, 75 basis points, which brings us uh, a little bit uh, above 4,100 in the futures. And I'll just say this. I don't think there was anything this week from the Fed chair pal. It wasn't, it was, it was a hawkish, um, hike. Okay, let's just be clear on that. Okay, if you look at today's jobs data, it doesn't make me feel like there should be anything there that should be perceived to be dovish, Danny. So, like, I get it. If you were a bull, those revisions, maybe they kind of help a little bit there. And then I think of just the last earnings that we just got from Apple. I mean, they just had their second consecutive um, revenue decline. Okay, this was year over year as far as revenues. And they just guided down the current quarter in revenues. And I get what you're saying on margin. I get where the U.S. dollar is. I get the exposure um, that lots of U.S. large multinationals have, and so the dollar might start to be um, a tailwind, as it had been a headwind in the year prior here. But I I just think a little bit about valuation. To your point, we quote John Butters, our friend over there at Earnings Insight at the FactSet um, blog. And, you know, if you look at the forward P.E. of the S&P at about 18 and a half, it's in line with the five-year average, and it's above the 10-year average. And the biggest differentiator here, I think we all agree, that... That the only way Fed funds is going to come down meaningfully is if this crisis in the regional banks turns into something bigger, right? If the economy slows. Quicker than most people think. If a recession starts and it ends up being deeper than we kind of think, I think the base case now is that we maybe avoid back to what Powell said is possibly different this time, or we have a very shallow sort of recession. I just look at stocks and I say to myself, okay, the VIX got above twenty briefly yesterday. It's going to get kind of cream today, especially Friday into the close. If the S and P can stay up, we talk about this move index. It is picking up a little bit. Danny, before we got on, you just mentioned the volatility that we've seen in treasury yields. And I just look at the sequencing that our friend Carter Braxton Worth from Worth Charting has mentioned on numerous occasions over the last couple of months. If you look at the start from January 2022 these moves that we've had to into and out of earnings these big rallies over about a month or two and then they've come off and they were making new lows last year the first time we didn't make a new low was the retest after the October so now it looks like we're making a series of higher lows in the S&P but I'll just point you again towards 4200 I'll point you again towards the VIX where it is I'll point you again to the debt ceiling that is only going to get dialed up and I think we're we're going to have a 25 to 30 VIX in the not so distant future. And I think that this disconnect, this spread between Fed funds, which is going to stay stuck here at 5%. If you're looking at the CME Fed tracker for the June meeting, it doesn't look like there is, um, you know, small chance of a hike implied. Um, and so I just say to
3: myself, this is actually a perfect cocktail of complacency right now. Don't mistake my comments for bullishness. I'm just trying yeah. to be, you know, I always oh, try to be a little bit totally constructive, but, but can hey, I make, Danny,
2: on. can I make one other point? This is, yeah. I think one of the most important things that happened in the equity market this week. Okay. So this is Friday, last Friday, ExxonMobil reported, okay. Their Q1 earnings, the stock made a new brief all time high. Okay, it traded like $120. It traded as low as 105 yesterday, okay? It dropped like a lug. And we've been quoting this, and this goes back to Butter's guy. He has been telling us in his Earnings Insight blog, For quarters now that the contribution to S&P earnings by the energy sector, which basically kept things afloat for all intents and purposes, you know, with a two-handle or 200-handle for S&P earnings in 2022, was going to start to drop off mid-year this year. And so you better have operating margins start to improve a little bit in some of these other bigger names. And I would just mention this, is that when you see a name like Exxon drop like that, and it is so well-liked by the investment community, it makes makes me very nervous about an Apple and a Microsoft and NVIDIA. All of the risk in the stock market has been transferred to a half a dozen names. And I know we did the carry the weight a couple weeks ago, but it gets more acute now the longer we get into this and the more complacent some of the readings that I see, some of the inputs that I focus on are. And I think we are in for a down 3 to 5% day in the NASDAQ in the not-so-distant future, and it's going to be led by some of the largest names that I think the
3: investors have just been hiding in. I don't disagree, and I said on February 2nd high that I'll just use the SPY at 4.18.31 that we wouldn't hit that again. I was holding on for dear life on May May 1st when the SPY hit 4.17.62 and then quickly reverted, so it did not make a new high for the year. I still stand by, at least in the first half of the year, we will not get back through that, but your boy Butters was the same one that was quoted to your point, Dan, operating margins a little bit better than expected with 70% of the companies having been reported. That does not set up well potentially going forward when you start to compare second quarter versus first quarter to your point, then S-
0: Sir Thomas, uh, I'm sorry, I mean, Stu, and it really is remarkable. I don't know if we can put in the show notes a picture of Sir Thomas Wyatt, who clearly is no longer with us, side by side with Stuart Sopp. It's remarkable. It's Sort of like Val Kilmore in that movie with Elizabeth Shue. But I digress. That was a good movie, by the way.
1: The same. We were talking about that the other day. Were you really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were
0: I'm in your head. When you're in charge of a large organization, you have your head down, you're doing your thing, you're focused, every single day you grind. But at a certain point, you sort of take a step back, look at the world from 30,000 feet. And since last we spoke, the world's changed considerably. So on the margins, in terms of current and what you're doing, is all this a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm not trying to equivocate here. I mean, I think we all agree it's not a great thing, but, you know, sometimes you have to look at through the lens of your business and what opportunities
1: it creates. We have a uh, new credit product, credit building product coming out in about four weeks. Um, and then we have a cash advance product coming out in a couple of months. Um, we, you know, look through things from a from a macro lens, um, Guilty as charged, and, you uh, and uh, the way we look at it is like, okay, inflation's higher for longer, interest rates are higher for longer, unemployment is at maximum, you know, is at the maximum uh, level. And so, going forward, things can only get worse. Really, from this point, right? So things can only get worse as, as we draw down savings and, and credit creation is lower, and all the rest of it. And, all, and, and the regional banks get rolled up, and, and all the things that we just mentioned. So, from, from a from a consumer point of view, that um, blue collar worker, person who is you know, a backbone of America. Um, they're going to need to build or rebuild their credit. They need access to cash that is fair and uh, and transparent. And and so we are building those products as soon as possible to get them out to help people in their everyday life. So in, in one sense, it provides opportunity for us to 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 really fill a gap that is is being left behind through this crisis, uh, and will continue. Um, and on the other hand, you know. You you sort of go okay, it's not great for the world. When, when I was last on here, or I was last on CNBC, I was saying it's not systemic, and it's you know it, it's the sort of inning first innings of a problem. I'm starting to get a little bit more worried here. I think the regional banking crisis is a bit of a sideshow, and I think it's going to highlight bigger problems in, in the broader economy. I think there's other things to look at.
3: Let me just say this in conjunction with you launching these new products and so forth, and I know you're very careful and you're. Banking partners are very careful in building this company. And um, Upstart, you know, this quote AI lending company, right, was using Cross River Bank as well as Affirm. By the way, I, I will note that Upstart and Affirm both report earnings on May 8th. Can't wait to hear what they have to say about how that's going. But Cross River Bank got a cease and desist from the FDIC, basically, for unsafe or unsound banking practices. And this whole AI, you know, using for lending, which Vinnie Daniel will talk about at length, this goes back to Lending Club. You cannot commoditize lending, right? You got to be very careful in how you build your book. And still, I know you guys are going to be obviously right. doing that. And I think this brings up this you know, whole other element of these quote rent-a-banks, which are kind of out there. We've talked about these regional banks, but these rent-a-banks, they grew during the PPP time era, right? That's how a lot of these kind of banks grew. So I just wanted to get that in there because we've been negative on these companies and these platforms for some time. They tried to hide as quote tech companies, but when you start to move into these banking services, right? You have to acknowledge kind of the risks that are inherent in there. And I just do I know you guys have thought long and hard about that as you kind of build build these products in your in your company?
1: Yeah. So we connect to a lot of these banks. We connect to three of them. So and you mentioned one of them, <laughs> and so um, we're very careful about how we work with them. Um, when it, There's two sides to this story. There's the, the bank side and how good they are at compliance and regulatory capture and all that other stuff and their internal controls. Can they scale? Because tech, tech firms like ourselves, fintech firms, we can scale pretty quickly. And then when you're when you're dealing with a regional bank that has only had local growth for 100 years, all of a sudden it gets really complex for them. They're like, okay, this is really quick. You know, Can we hire enough people locally and all this other stuff? And I think that those sort of, as you call them, renter banks or renter charters, they've definitely gone through something. It's not recent, but they've gone through something over the last year to two years. And I think they've got a lot better. From our side, we get audited several times through all our banks. And there's third-party audits. There's a visa audit. Sometimes we do a Fed audit. And so you can imagine because the nature of how we connect to the banking industry, we have to comply and be regulatorily um, uh, uh, the the best that can be out there. Because of course, you know, um, we're going to be looked at in this way because we can grow so quick. When you talk about regulators, you talk about like the speed of asset accumulation or deceleration uh, and and also customer growth. What what the regulators and, and the administration do not want, is a blind spot in the safety and security of the banking system. And so I think this is all good in the sense of, you know, um that the sort of top down pressure that we're seeing, I don't think it's that healthy when it comes to crypto in my personal view. I don't think that has been healthy at all. But when it comes to like traditional banking and and how we're, and how we're being um uh, regulated, I think it's good. I think it's time for a lot of us, uh, reg- uh, the, the, the fintech community, as well as the, the sort of rent-a-bank community to sort of grow up a little bit and uh, get, get with the program. I would say this finally, is that if you're starting a smaller fintech, right? You're a seed stage or you're a, you're a, um, a series A, it's gonna be really expensive and really hard to get going now, because I think that window is closed.
0: visit iConnections.io. This is a public service announcement coming midway through this podcast. There's certain things you don't skimp on when you go to the grocery store. One of them is Saran Wrap because if you get sort of the cheaper brand, it's one of those things that once it sticks to itself, it's impossible to make the roll work. It's just one of those things you want to effing scream. The other thing, of course, is tinfoil, or aluminum foil, and I'm a Reynolds wrap person myself. But I do not buy the aforementioned Reynolds wrap to create a tinfoil hat for myself. Uh, But I have been, as Danny Moses has been, an ardent um, supporter of what's going on in the gold market. So tinfoil hats notwithstanding, there is something going on here in gold, Danny Moses, as I've mentioned a number of times. In 2022, central banks globally bought 70 billion dollars worth of gold 1131 tons that was a record they're on pace to probably duplicate that this year although there's still half a year or so left the gold price is finally um showing some signs of life and what i'll tell you is in terms of the market being long of gold we're probably about a 60 percent level as where we were the last time gold was at this level point being The market isn't long yet. And I'm going to tell you again, um, for the record, everything that we've talked about for the last 32 minutes and all the things that we've been talking about for the last six to nine months, year, 18 months, is walking its way into the gold market. And I said this, and you can use it as a bumper sticker, Danny. Central banks, by buying gold, are hedging their own stupidity. So with that, as the gold market continues to sort of hover around this 2,000 level, what are your thoughts, Danny? Does this thing have legs?
3: Yeah, I think every pullback and we're getting a slight one today is a buying opportunity because it's hard to see any type of scenario other than a perfect soft landing where gold doesn't perform. And, you know, one thing's being lost in this last few days here uh, with Pal and everything is Russia. This stuff's really heating up over there. The You know, this drone, supposed drone that tried to attack the Kremlin, blame the U.S. There's 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 all these reports I'm reading now about. Russia's scoping out our underwater cables near our coast and all this stuff it feels like things are brewing again. And I bring that up because all the geopolitical stuff that still happened, that's it's getting worse. We're just obsessed with what's going on here with the Fed lends itself to gold. And I do believe you're right. And I think if we're right on our assessment of the economy and where we're headed and QT quote ending and some form of QE, which has been going on with the bank's bailouts, so to speak, lends itself to gold. So Every pullback guy is a buying opportunity, in my opinion. I'm totally with you.
1: I I think also uh, you're seeing something um, seismic happen with gold um, and the treasury markets. US treasuries used to be the best collateral that everyone could buy in the world. Given those uh, uh, geopolitical risks that Danny just mentioned, they're continuing. You've seen the BRICS nations all get together. They want their own payment system. They want their own uh, currencies uh, to deal with energy, which is all fine. I don't believe it's the end of the dollar or anything like that yet. Um, But what I I do see is a lack of demand for US treasuries, and that is being replaced with gold. And I think that is just this seismic thing that's not going to go away over decades.
0: And Stu, you did this, we've talked about it before, but for some new listeners, and our audience continues to build on a weekly basis. So folks that don't know, in a past life, aside from being a 16th century poet, you actually traded currencies, and I'm sure you dabbled in the yellow metal. So when you see this, obviously, you're looking at it from a much different vantage point. There's a lot of interesting things going on. Now, forget about the gold market, the precious metals market. The currency market is fascinating. And the moves that we're seeing, think about what's going on with the ECB. Think about the decisions that they're forced to make. They probably have a bigger inflation problem than we have. And they have economy that's sort of grinding to a halt. And they have to decide whether or not they're going to continue to sort of tamp down their economy by fighting inflation, and they've chosen to go that route. Very difficult decisions now globally, and that has impact not only on the commodity market, but the currency market, a seat that you used to occupy.
1: Yeah, that's right. So uh, I still uh, do a cheeky look every morning and, and and look at the whole 50 currencies or whatever it was I used to used to know to the pip. Um, I think you know we look very uh, we look very nationally or very uh, sort of uh, at at the US for like what's going to break. I think it's important to sort of look at um, the uh, international community, right? So you just mentioned um, uh, Europe, like maybe the Fed uh, doesn't see too much risk here. Maybe he maybe they are right, right? And so if Deutsche Bank goes under, we already saw Credit Suisse go under, right? Is it a Deutsche Bank thing? Is it a European banking contagion that then forces the hand of the Fed? Um, I think that is really important to look at. And in those kind of cases, it looks like Eurodollar, I mean, I don't want to give any investment advice, but Eurodollar looks kind of toppy up here, right? Like 110, 111, 112, you know, if I was a Eurodollar trader, uh, like back in the day, I'd be uh, sort of scaling into shorts here because I, I see uh, material risk, uh, you know, in, in the US, but also which means the dollar tends to go up in, in those uh, in those liquidity breaks. Uh, and then there are sort of secular or or sort of banking risks that I think haven't been totally played out yet in, in Europe. And I think that's something I think you're right, Guy. I think that is something that we should all be looking at. And that's potentially what sort of triggers the next wave of of, of equity selling, I think.
0: Dan, whilst I was flying home from Omaha, Nebraska, it is beautiful, by the way. Uh, the Apple earnings report came out. You obviously discussed it on CNBC's Fast Money last night. By the way, that's five o'clock Eastern time. Uh, that show is now 16 and a half years old, which is quite remarkable. I saw the numbers. I went through them, obviously, on a very sort of, you know, tertiary level, I guess. And they didn't seem all that impressive to me. And You know, Apple's become more expensive on the back of that earnings release and with the stock appreciation more so now. I think I understand to a certain point what the market's looking at. Danny mentioned the fact that, you know, they're getting rewarded for quote unquote, you know, being now, you know, part bank, which is really mystifying to me. Services continues to be a driver, but this is not a cheap stock, especially in light of the fact that you continue to see declining revenues. So, People obviously don't want to focus on that, Dan, but it's out there if you want to just take a look.
2: Yeah. So when you think about services being a driver, I mean, it came in at 5% year over year growth. So when this stock got re-rated, right, so this was trading below a market multiple for years before like the service component kind of came into the mix because the mix shift of their margins was going to be a lot better away from their hardware margins. And again, you know, in the smartphone industry where they have like 20% market share, I just want to be really clear about that globally. I mean, a lot of people think because everyone, you know, in America um, has an iPhone. IPhone, that is not the case in other parts of the world. And so when you think about their market share, but you also think about their margin, they also take about like 85% of the gross margin in the entire smartphone industry. So they better be able to maintain those margins, reshoring a lot of manufacturing and reorienting their um, supply chains away from China should be put some pressure on margins. Some of the takes I heard is that they guided for flat margins and we know that India, and they talked about India a lot um, is going to be an important market for them, so they're going to shift a lot of manufacturing away from China. Um, over there they talked about a 2 billion plus installed base that's growing and I think about the services and I say to myself well how is services only at 5% when they had more than 5% installed base growth, right? And so if the services just goes flat, okay, or like 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 X growth here, I think that's a really big problem for this multiple at about 28 times your point guy revenues and sales this year expected to be low to mid single digits at best next year maybe mid to high trading about 25 times next you know the stock had just opened at 171 dollars okay the high I think of the year is 175 the high all-time high is 183 dollars it feels like it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to go there this is a 2.45 trillion dollar market cap company that is not pricing in in my opinion at this valuation any likelihood of a recession. And I think those are the things that I think are really important. Microsoft is another one, you know, two plus trillion dollar market cap, where there's so much excitement about OpenAI and their investment and their integration of that into their products. And that's why I'll just come back to the fact that I think there's a lot of risk and a handful of names that have unusual um, excitement about it, where the fundamentals might be as good as it gets right now, especially relative to their valuation. So I don't know, man, I said this, I don't know if you were watching on the plane on the way home guy my final trade was um apple sell in may and go away and then i actually name checked you as the kids say because i knew that if you were sitting in 26b in the middle seat as he does looking like private pile just staring ahead staring ahead that if i had said that and you had your your direct tv on that might have really twerked you
0: Full Metal Jacket, without question. Arlie Army, and speaking of Arlie Army, somebody about as old as he. By the way, he was fantastic in that movie. So, Stu, it's interesting. Obviously, you know, Dan spoke to it. Danny did as well in terms of Apple and what they're getting themselves into. Obviously, they want to sort of, I guess, immerse themselves in as many businesses as they see viable. But banking seems now to be one of them. And we've talked about this before, but how do you view Apple? Competitor? Are they somebody you can sort of coexist with? How does that sort of line up with what you're doing at Current?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting what they're doing here. Obviously, banking is not a primary business for them. They're in the business of shilling uh, uh, iPhones globally, as um, as Dan already mentioned. And I think, you know, when it comes to falling sales of iPhones, we've already hit peak iPhone and now it's a market share game, as everyone has already sort of identified. And so they're using banking and they're using a traditional banking tool, which is like show a really high interest rate, a high yield, and you'll get a bunch of customers. And I think it's just this weird juxtaposition where they're using this sort of blunt tool to go and get um, iPhone sales. Um, So I'm really interested. They sort of rolled this out in Q1. Um, uh, into into the early part of Q2, I'm interested to see if that is effective for Q uh, Q2 and Q3 iPhone sales. Did people get iPhones because they wanted to get 4.15% uh, interest rate yield? And so and so, we we should be looking at that as as a, as a framework, I think, or as a lens to understand if they're really going to build upon their financial services um, uh, products. I don't think this is meant for them to make money. Why are they showing such a high interest rate, even compared to the 3.9% of markets? I think the the, the reality and the, the sort of sobering reality for for the banking fraternity is that they don't need to make money. This is CAC. This is customer acquisition cost. This is engagement, and so it's a really interesting dynamic that has come through. It is not directly competitive to us um, for all for all the reasons that you that we've, we've said over the years. Um, but I think for for maybe a JP Morgan or one of those money center banks, it's kind of worrying. Well, you know what's interesting about it. So when I think about this, is that if you have an
2: iTunes account associated with an uh, you know with, with an iPhone or any hardware, you likely have your credit card in there. So they've already financialized this relationship, and then they also know that this growth that they've had in services. I think they look at this offering as just another service, right? They're going to be gu- pushing harder into healthcare. They're going to have AR, VR headsets. They're, they're, you know, wearables has been. So I think they're they're moving towards this recurring model because they have this financial relationship with you. And so this is something actually, you know, I just said the sell in May and go away bit um, as it relates to Apple. If there was ever like a reset in this stock, and, and again, as we get, let's say, to the other side of this economic period that we're in, I actually think because of that $2 billion installed base, they are probably to do a whole host of things. And I actually think it will grow back into this sort of multiple, but there needs to be a little bit of fear in it. I just don't ever think that they are going to be a financial behemoth. I think that they see it around the edges as a really good place to be because it does, when you have a bank account or you have some sort of financial relationship, it makes that relationship that much stickier.
1: Yeah, I think in this world of hyper-digitalization and um and lower barriers to for, for product build and rollout, everyone wants the ecosystem. Everyone is going after the ecosystem. There is revenue diversification, there is customer engagement benefits. Um, and so you're seeing that from the hardware. You look at Tesla, you look at, yeah. <laughs> at Apple, you yeah. look at it. Like, I look at as you said earlier, cheekily every morning. I look I do, at it. I do I'm also I'm also in your account with that one in the short term. Um, but but what we're seeing here is, is like exceptional valuations from these companies because people have already priced in these ecosystems, sort of dominating everything in the, in every vertical. And I just don't think that will happen. But it will be pretty good for those companies. They should trade at a premium. It's just probably not at the premium that they're currently priced at.
2: Yeah. And one other thing, I think it's important. You know, kind of end of the week here with Apple. This was the last big tech company. There is actually one more. So Nvidia is going to report on May twenty fourth. And and I thought what what we heard from semis and some of the competitors in Nvidia this week. There was actually some really big news. We started the week with Arista Networks and some of their biggest um, customers are some of the the cloud operators, uh, Meta, Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft. And they had a big warning, actually. And they said they see softness here. Um, And so I think if you're trading a lot of these techs um, on what was reported for the last three months versus what they're saying right now. It's probably incorrect in my um, judgment. Also, we had AMD results this week. They talked about weakness um, in data center. Qualcomm, we talked about weakness in handsets. When I look at the handset numbers and Qualcomm is, uh, Apple's a 20% customer of Qualcomm. You know, know, Apple told us that China was okay. Okay, it was up year over year, um, but there was a lot of pull, like I guess they recaptured some sales that they missed in the last quarter. And I put together what China did relative to the recapture and the reopening, and then what service is telling me, I'm not that optimistic about the current quarter, and this June quarter is always a weak one for Apple. The last thing I'll just say about Apple on June 5th, they have the worldwide developers forum, and they're going to talk about AI. They're going to talk about every buzzword you can think of. They're going to talk about the financial products. They're going to talk about AR, VR. They're supposed to announce some sort of high-end handset. So those are all bullish things. I just don't know how you buy the stock going into new 52-week highs of 40% from the January lows. Um, And just the last point, Guy, and I got to get your take on this because this happened yesterday afternoon. Microsoft and AMD um, had an announcement or I don't know if it was an announcement, but it was something that leaked that Microsoft is going to help finance at least the build out of AMD's um, advanced AI chips, which is basically we know one of the reasons why NVIDIA is up 90 percent on the year, up almost 200 percent from its lows is the excitement around the chips and the platforms and the services that they have geared towards AI, and there is a shortage of them. NVIDIA barely sold off. AMD rallied 10% at its highs on that news, and it just seemed a bit shocking to me. I just feel like this NVIDIA bubble is probably close to bursting. I have a position playing for that in the next month, month and a half or so, um, but this has been a really dicey trade here, and NVIDIA looks like the new widow maker in the market.
0: Yeah, no question. I mean, that's been my thought as well. But, you know, I've been thinking about that NVIDIA probably for the last 30%. So that's clearly been wrong. But that Microsoft AMD um, announcement or headline is clearly a shot across the bow to NVIDIA for whatever reason. Maybe there's a collective fear that NVIDIA has sort of gotten itself off and running in this race and are just sort of not looking back, and everybody else is sort of an afterthought. and And maybe. Microsoft and Nvidia, excuse me, Microsoft and AMD needed that type of partnership to stem the tide. But in terms of semis, you know, the having to have knots, it, it's stark actually. You know, you look at Nvidia on one side of the equation, AMD finds itself sort of in the middle, and that 10% move to the upside basically offset the move we saw post earnings. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you see a Qualcomm trading at about 106 or so, and that's within an earshot of its 52-week low, I think we made in November. So the juxtaposition, a lot of these semi-companies are just fascinating. And if you've tried to play the valuation game and the pair trade game, it's been a tough slog over the first you know five or six months of this year, and that seems to want to continue. Before we get out of here, this Lyft Uber stuff, Dan, I think is interesting. It's sort of coming across as we've been speaking. What are your thoughts on potentially Bit of a price war potentially going on with these two guys.
2: Yeah, so List Founders are out as CEOs. That was announced, I think, about a month ago. Um, and, you know, they have a new CEO, and he just lowered the bar. I mean, the stock's down 18%. It's trading at a multi-year low here. And, again, you know, this company that I think from um, an EBITDA standpoint, um, you know, the story was how can they get to profitability, okay? So that's kind of out the window. The new CEO said basically they have to re-engage some so market share both in drivers and bo- and, and then obviously customers. Um, You know, Uber had a great week. I mean, Dara is, I think, continues to prove to be like just an A-plus CEO. He's basically hit all of the targets since the pandemic that he said he was going to do. They were going to get to EBITDA profitability. They're going to get to free cash flow positive. They were going to get to um, gap profitability, which they're making progress. The stock, I think, was up 15 to 20% on its results and the guidance that it gave um, this week. And so it's down a little bit today because of that Lyft price war. I look at Lyft, and I'll just say this. You know, um, when you think about all of the data that they have and all the all that we hear about autonomous taxi fleets and this and that or whatever, and this is also something I think Apple is likely to get into at some time in the not so distant future or some something as it relates to autos is probably more of the infrastructure software, if you will. But this has a two and a half billion dollar enterprise value. This is Lyft right now. And I just say to myself, billion market cap, 1.8 billion in cash. Yes, they're losing a little money. 1 billion in debt. It's just too cheap of an asset. And we also know this. And Stuart, I want to get your uh, your take on this. Is that We know here in America, even when there is a dominant player like an Uber as it relates to market share, and they're getting stronger, and they're getting towards profitability, which is only going to let them flex more and more, it is favorable to have a number two, no matter how weak it is or so. So how do you think about the potential for a price war? Do you think it's the thing that drives Lyft to zero? um, Or do you think it has any meaningful impact on Uber? And how do you think that Dara is looking at this and saying, we got this? You know what I mean? I'm just curious how you think about it, because customer acquisition and market share, those are all things that are always top of mind for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope there's a price war. Um, I mean, if, you, if, 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 if it was a consumer, I mean, you know, if you've taken an Uber in uh, New York City over the last couple of years, it's only gone one way. Um, so, from personal, personal uh, consumption, that would be great. Um, I think here you're, you're sort of looking at um, the ecosystem versus the, the vertical and, I, and I th- we can sort of tie this back to like you know, the Apple talk and the Tesla talk is Uber has an ecosystem, right? And so they don't just do uh, consumer, they, they also do B2B, they do Eats, they have you know, their Eats product is, is a phenomenally successful product. Um, when you look at Lyft, they're, they're just a vertical, right? They do ride share only, and so because they don't have that rev, uh, that revenue diversification, because they don't have that ecosystem that Dara has really built out, and he's executed on, like you've just said, he's a real he's a real class player. Um, you, you know, they're gonna they're gonna struggle. They've got one lever, right? they got one lever in its, pr- its price, and so I think this continues. I think the price war from a Lyft point of view will continue, but the ecosystem of Uber, I think, ultimately wins unless Ly- Lyft can get the. investment investment and the product build out um, to, to really compete. Also, fun fact. Uh, founder of Uber uh, gave uh, gave current its first check. Its no first, yeah, that's right, Garrett Camp. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. All
2: right, fair enough. All right, here, here's one other question for you. Um, this one reports next week. This is Robinhood, and I think this is kind of um, also in your your wheelhouse. And you know, this thing got I, I was looking at it last night on Fast Money because we were talking about Coinbase's earnings, and you know, obviously they're 100 percent exposed to crypto assets, right? And they also have this um, SEC investigation as well as notice was issued to them. I think it was in March about some of their staking products and some of the other like and you know my my answer to melissa lee is like if you're interested in potential upside in you know exposure to crypto coming back as like a, a trading you know kind of vehicle and it was hugely profitable for Robinhood back in the day um i'd say why wouldn't you just go to a Robinhood? the sentiment couldn't be worse you know we know a lot of those retail traders have been taken out we still know that they have you know a pretty decent customer base at a demographic that i think a lot of, of financial services companies companies like you are happy to serve because as you layer on more products and services, you want to get those customers early. I look at Robin Hood, and Guy, I definitely want your take here too. $7.8 billion market cap, $6.2 billion in cash. Remember, this was one of the biggest IPOs in, in in 2021 and only one and a half in debt. And I say to myself, they got exposure to anything you want to YOLO as far as stocks, ETFs, options, commodities, you know, like, so I look at this thing and I say, okay, they're still losing money. That's not a great place to be in this sort of environment, right? But, you know, um, revenue growth, I think, is probably at least um, the deceleration in revenues um, from 2021 to 2022, we're back near the expected peak. It was $1.8 billion. I just say to myself, this is kind of a cheap-ish asset, and it gives you exposure to the retail trader coming back to traditional markets, but also to crypto. And I'd rather be there, I guess, than Coinbase, given the regulatory overhang and some of the fee issues that they have.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's a you know it's a well-run company. They're um, they've taken a different angle. Obviously, they're under a different regulatory authority with the broker dealer and all that other stuff. And so, I think your comparison to Coinbase I- I- is fair. I think the regulatory capture um, in the US is is brutal. Is I think is the right word. Um, and so, if it's your primary business, you've both seen like uh, the Gemini, um, the Winklevoss twins, and Coinbase start offshore. Um, uh, entities the last two, two or three weeks. I think that says everything. They're sort of saying okay, America is not the home for for for, for Bitcoin and, and some of these currencies, uh, cryptocurrencies. And so when you look at uh, Robin Hood, it's primary businesses, obviously. Retail investing, um, you know, synced up to Citadel. And I think that's not going away. It's well positioned for a bounce. As you say, all those um, all those uh, all those numbers like uh, look pretty good to me. I, I would say this: they need to start building that ecosystem. Maybe they need to start getting into banking or so, other things like that, content things like that. And and you know they got all that cash, so they, they should get going. So in
2: 2021, when they had 1.8 billion dollars of revenues, they lost 3.7 billion dollars. Last year, they had just under 1.4 billion dollars in revenue, and they lost about 1 billion. This is in gap net income. This year, expected to get back to 1.8 billion, but only expected to lose. I know this sounds crazy, 600 million. Next year, they could be Gap profitable, okay? So, like, to me, what I want to do is take a small position into this thing. If there is a gap lower, that would be G-A-P, not G-A-A-P, okay? Then I'm going to load the boat. And if it ever got guy towards those lows, think about this. This was like a bell ringing moment. There was a lot of companies that lost 80% from their highs from 2000 into the lows in 2002. And one of the really interesting indicators for me is that some of those companies did a great job raising cash at the high. And when their equity value got close to their cash value, it was almost a bell ringing at the bottom, and some of those companies were up two, three hundred percent over the next year or so. And that's kind of how I would be thinking about a Robinhood right here into its print next week.
1: I think with Robinhood, you're playing the interest rate curve, right? So a lot of broker dealers, when uh, when the market goes sideways and interest rates go up as rapidly as we've seen, they become you know net interest income. Uh, machines uh, rather than sort of uh, bro- uh, uh, fee-based machines. And so if you think it's high for longer, I, I, I agree with you, Dan. I think they they're, they're going to make a lot of money.
0: Interesting play here. as we sit here before we five thousand four hundred and two s and p names are printed, seventy one percent of them beat on EPS, seventy eight percent beat on sales, and fifty eight percent beat on both. So the s and p is now tracking at a four point one percent EPS beat versus the consensus expectations that's coming from our friend Savita Subramanian at Bank of America just something to keep in mind next week the two biggies I think in terms of uh, earnings Disney on one end PayPal which can't get out of its own way on the other side of the equation Carl Icahn and you know oh the humanity for you Hindenburg fans out there from back in the day but oh the humanity Danny with what's going on in IEP and I don't want to play the stock market game there. But once again, Hindenburg is out with a short report, this time going after Carl Icahn. Obviously, this is a legendary man. He is on the Parthenon in terms of the who's who of, of market participants. But it's, it's one of those things where there's smoke, there's fire. They want People want to um, villainize and vilify these short sellers. I still say they play a vital role I haven't read the entire report. I can't speak to the veracity of the report, but clearly there's something there,
3: Danny Moses. So Hindenburg Research had a report out a few days ago on Icon Enterprises symbol IEP. It was a 22 billion market cap currently down to about, well, bouncing off the 13 billion, probably up to 15 billion at this point, saying that they're unable to earn the dividend, which they keep paying, which is, by the way, $8 a year. So the dividend yield on paper looks very high. ICON owns the majority of this thing, I think over 85% of it. And Hindenburg basically breaks down why they think that the net asset value um, is tremendously overstated, mismarking of a portfolio, et cetera. And importantly, ICON, I guess, has pledged about 181 million shares of the stock into this thing. And so he's a little bit levered. So as the stock goes down like it is or like it has been, that certainly puts ICON in an unenviable position. And so basically, you're going to get earnings report next week. Icon, I think, moved up the earnings date to May 10th, went ahead and uh, you know, announced this $2 dividend quarterly, again, $8 annualized. And so, again, it's hard to argue with the, with the logic and the facts that um, Hindenburg wrote in the report. So retail investors, beware. I think it's mainly owned by retail outside of Icon owning it themselves. And it's just a wake-up call that people can still do bottom-up work, both on longs and shorts, and ha- how to really be careful and navigate out there. So tomorrow is Saturday,
0: May 6th. So as close to the l- latest time of the year, the Kentucky Derby can be run the first Saturday in May. We have an expert handicapper with us today, happens to be <laughs> the great Danny Moses, who, on you know, on the side note, loves the ponies, as they say. And I think
3: your mom is a big fan of the ponies as well. Yep. 149th running. And remember, a couple of years ago, we had Jack Wolf and Bob Baffert on before they won the derby together. Baffert has now been banned from Kentucky. Uh, He cannot attend this year's. I think next year he gets to come back. But really interesting race. There's been some craziness that's gone on. Sadly, some horses have, have died on the track at Churchill in the last week. And one of them or two of them were actually trained by one one specific trainer, which is now Lord Niles, um, the trainer, has now been disqualified. So that horse is now out. So let's get to who is in this race. So you got the five-horse, Tappet Trice, right? It's one of its last four races. It's coming out of the five-hole, which, by the way, guys, since 1930, when they started using Gates, that's been the hottest slot. Ten winners have come out of that five-hole. I like him a lot. That's Todd Pletcher, who's won the Derby twice, right? And Luis Saez is aboard. I love Tappet Trice here, the five. Forte, another Pletcher-trained horse, the fifteen. Who has won five races in a row, came back from nowhere to win the Florida Derby. Arado Ortiz is on it, so the 15. Angel Vampire, the 14, 6 to 1. Flavian Pratt's on it. Brad Cox, they won the Arkansas Derby. They're coming in kind of hot. Kind of a long shot I love here. I'm going to get to my picks, so how I'm going to bet it in a second, but verifying the two horse right now at 24 to 1. Obviously, you can bet futures great. I think it'll go off less than that, probably 10 or 15 to 1. That's Brad Cox. That was sired by Justify, right? So the one, the 2018 Triple Crown. Six starts, two wins, two places. I like this horse. It's getting better with age. And then Jack Wolf Starlight Racing owns part of this horse, Reincarnate, the seven, which won the Sham Stakes. And Baffert trains him in California, then sends it over to Yachtine. So here's my bet. All right. I like the five to win across, right? I then like the exact box, five two, seven, 14, 15, box those together as well as a trifecta and throw something on verifying to win because at those odds, I think this horse has a real chance, but tap it trice is my pick here coming out of the five hole, but sprinkle some stuff on the other. And if you want to do a trifecta, put those same five horses in together, the two, the five, the seven, the 14 and the 15 box them all 20 horses, uh, two new ones to have been taken out. The other one practical move spiked to fever. So they took that horse out as well. So anyway, it should be quite an interesting race. It's really, really wide open, as it always is, Guy.
0: Weather will not be a factor at Churchill Downs tomorrow. Is that
3: correct, Danny Moses? It may sprinkle a little bit, but it does not look like Mudders will have an advantage tomorrow for sure.
0: The track is fast at Churchill Downs. I think, what time does the race go off now? Like 9 o'clock at night? I mean, 57. It I think it's think it every
3: year. I think it's 6.57 p.m. Eastern time. So I forward to it.
0: The fastest two minutes in sports, Danny Moses, our resident handicapper, and you've nailed some of these races. So I am going to, as you say, sprinkle a few shekels on some of these ponies. Listen, it is a bit of a stampede. Basically, if the race opens up for you, it's a magical day. And if you're an owner of one of these horses, and hopefully at some point, Danny, maybe you and I and Dan Nathan can sort of partner up and buy a horse Oh, How much fun I've, would it be to go down there and, and
3: stand in the winner's circle? So I've done that. I paid that price, so to speak. And um, it's fun. I'll tell you that. But, you know, I wish I had some of that money back. But, yes, I've, I've done that. Been on the track. Done that. Fun. Checked that off the bucket list. But, yeah, let me know. Maybe we'll get a risk reversal horse in there at some point. So dollar and a dream, guy. Dollar and a dream. Dollar and a dream. I want to thank Stuart Sopp for joining us. Thanks for
0: indulging me with my Sir Thomas Wyatt. But I'm telling you, the more I think about it, the more I am on to something. Dan Nathan, you're the man, the great Danny Moses as well. Uh, as they say, smash the like button. Check us out in your favorite podcast store. And we will no doubt be back next week with another episode of the On The Tape podcast. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.